purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Hey, I'm Kevin Monroe, and I have the privilege of welcoming you to this episode, number 88, of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular, I'm thrilled that you're listening now. I realize you have a choice. You really do. I recently learned that there are over 600,000 podcasts, and you have chosen to listen to this one, the Higher Purpose Podcast. What does that mean? Well, obviously, you have great taste. I'm kidding. More than anything, it probably means you're weird like me, which really means you're wired like me. You're just wired for purpose. You see the world differently. You see business as a force for good and purpose as a force for animating and energizing business. And that means you're wired like the guest joining us today. What a pleasure to have Bob Chapman, the CEO of Barry Waymiller and co-author of Everybody Matters, subtitled The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. What a delight to have Bob join us today. So there's so much goodness packed into this episode. Let's get to it. Welcome, Bob Chapman. What a delight to have you join us today and add to this series of conversations we're having about what it means to approach business from a people-first focus and create cultures where people flourish and everybody matters. This is going to be awesome. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Kevin. So before we jump into anything else, Bob, I always, well, not always, for, for the past several months, six, eight months, I've started here. What's something you're grateful for in this moment? Well, there's no question in my mind that what I feel grateful for or overwhelmed by that someone, some higher power has chosen us, a simple manufacturing company, to show the world the way it was intended to be, where people genuinely feel cared for. And it is an overwhelming feeling of gratitude that I get that I was blessed with this message because there's no way what I'm going to share with you, I thought there's no way my intellectual background or experience background would lead me to this journey that I'm going to share with you. So I'm incredibly grateful that some higher power chose us to share this message of caring. Mm. I can't wait to hear that. So I'm sure you've been introduced a lot of ways. What's your favorite way of introducing the work you do through Barry Waymiller? You know, I think one of our team members did a compilation of Simon Sinek and me in a really compressed 1.5-minute video where he blends together Simon and me. And, and when Simon kind of introduces me, he said, you know, Bob Chapman is a person who genuinely cares about people. And he's said with incredible passion. And that is probably the most powerful introduction, mm. not, not the size of our company and not my education or not where I'm from. But when somebody like Simon, with the passion he did, said, Bob Chapman genuinely cares about people, that was a sense of great 
gratitude that I was blessed with that gift. So I would say to you, that's the most powerful. When I thought about that, that's the most powerful introduction. I genuinely care about people. I love it. So I have a feeling, though, from conversations, stuff I've read about you, even our earlier conversation before we hit record. Has it always been that way, Bob? Did you always genuinely care for people? You know, I think the way to answer that is when I was a young man, I was kind of unfocused, typical young man. And I was, I would say I was popular. You know, I wasn't, you know, I was on the student council and I always liked people and I was always very positive about life, very optimistic. So I would say to you, that is just taking on orders of magnitude of significance as I've grown up. I would always say to you, I just generally liked people. And I would say I, I had nice friends. And so it was just, you know, I've always been comfortable around people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, but you just didn't always make the connection between that and bringing that to business, I guess. And Right. I mean, because remember, when you get a business, you know, I, I got an accounting degree and then got an MBA. And I took management classes, got a management degree, got a job in management. And I thought, Kevin, that that meant I was supposed to manage people. Hmm. I went into a system where people were managed. And in that journey, it occurred to me that you can't manage anybody hmm. and nobody wants to be managed. You know, <laughs> so we have this language that I learned in business and experienced out in the business world, managers and bosses and supervisors and firing people and downside. So we have this broken language that dehumanizes business, which has really never been about human dignity. It's always been about value creation, you know, I'll call it profits and growth. And it's never been about human dignity from the Industrial Revolution. That's one of the things we're suffering from. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you to take us back in time a little bit. And it occurred to me. Sunday afternoon, while I was watching the one and only game of March Madness that I've caught so far, that there's a connection between March Madness and your journey. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Will you take us back to that morning in South Carolina and what you saw and how that impacted you? Yeah. None of this occurred to me at the time. Yeah. Because at the time, you know, I had just bought this company in South Carolina. I flew down there to be there before the company opened that day. I didn't know anybody. They didn't know me. So I was having a cup of coffee in the coffee area office, waiting for the office to begin at eight o'clock. And it was March 1997. And naturally, people in South Carolina are talking about March Madness and the, the pool they're in and what team won and what they bet on and just having fun. And, you know, the closer they got to eight o'clock, you could just see the fun go out of their body mm. to their job, to work. I always say you can't say the word job with a smile. Mm. And so I went down to a meeting at eight o'clock. And again, not having thought about any of this, I just was having a cup of coffee, saw people talking about the games, walked into a meeting with a, a team. And I really didn't have an agenda. I just, they were running an important product line. And out of me popped, we're going to play a game. Hmm. And whoever sells the most of the product each week wins. And if the team makes a team goal, the team wins. And my only motivation, because again, I never tried it, never thought about it. Didn't, it just popped out of me. I'm sure stimulated by March Madness. But I didn't walk down the room, thing, down to the room thing, but it just came out of me. 
And I said to myself, why can't business be fun? Why do we call it work? Okay. Why do we live in this country where it's TGIF? Thank God it's Friday. Because Kevin, I dream of a world where it's TGIM. Thank goodness it's Monday. Get back to a group of people I enjoy sharing my gifts with, feel appreciated with, and enjoy. Because the number one source of happiness in the world, according to Gallup, is a good job working with people you enjoy. Mm. And that's denied to most people in this country. Mm. Mm. Wow. I love it, Bob. I love it. You know, I had a dad. Were he still alive, he'd be 100 in just a couple of weeks here. And I don't know where it was instilled in him because he wasn't an educated man. He'd worked some really unpleasant jobs. But he always said to me as a teenager, Kevin, find something you love doing because you spend most of your waking hours doing it. And that just stuck with me, Bob. It just stuck with me. And I watched the choices my dad made to walk away from the security of a job to do some entrepreneurial thing where he found great joy. And it was just an example. Remember, that's a great statement. But when my granddaughter graduated from high school two and a half years ago, I had tears in my eyes while everybody else was clapping with applause and each individual got their diploma. Because I knew the world we were sending her out into, a world where there's an 88% chance she's going to work for somebody that doesn't care about her, and she's going to be disengaged, and it's going to affect her health and affect her family life. And so I just felt a sense of sorrow that we joyously see our children graduate from high school, go to college, and get a job. We're so happy when they get a job. Mm. When you know the statistics, and you know that there's very little chance she's going to do exactly what your dad suggested, be able to find a place where she is valued for who she is, that she shares her gifts and goes home each night appreciated, knowing that who she does and what she does matters. There's very little chance. So my goal is that these kids today and your dad in the past would have a chance to be a part of an organization that would genuinely care about him or her and support them in their personal growth through their role in the company. So that's my hope. You know, your dad's statement is beautiful. It's just, I hate to set people up with the hope that they can do that because very few people get a chance to do that. So, but you're pioneering a path where there are people, and one of the things I loved in your story, in your book, in things I've heard, and there's a bit of sadness there, Bob, are employees that have worked somewhere 30 and 40 years before being recognized before finding that, but at least they found that something happened and they tapped into that. You know, maybe it's later in life than you wish it would have happened, but talk about that. One of the stories that you've seen where somebody, you know, they worked in obscurity and isolation and probably even persevered through a lot of really sadness to put food. Well, on. I think we have a, a recognition award for people who's behavior embodies our guiding principle of leadership and people nominate people for that role. And then when they're surprised because they're picked by a committee of their peers as a guiding principle of leadership award winner, and they're recognized in front of their family and their colleagues. I was talking to one of the gentlemen that had been recognized about a year ago. I said, what does it feel like a year later to have been recognized by your peers for your goodness? And he said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, it's nice to know, listen to this, think of your father. 
It's nice to know after 32 years, I made a difference. Hmm. It was nice to know I made a difference. Elegant gentleman around 60, for 32 years, he didn't know that he made a difference in people's lives. Hmm. And so I would say to you that, you know, one of the interesting things, a gentleman in South Carolina who was recognized for his goodness, he said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I didn't think people thought so much of me. I was really taken back that I was nominated and I was amazed that I was recognized, you know, that I actually won. I was the first recipient. And he said, you know, now, Mr. Chapman, I need to be the person people think that I am. And I said, that is the greatest inspiration I can imagine. If everybody would simply be the person that people think they are, what a wonderful world we have. You know, I always said that winning has got some upside and downside. Downside, now you've got to be the person everybody looks up to. you got to be that person everybody admires. You know, one of the individuals said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I work here and I get 10 things right and I never hear a word. Mm. I get one thing wrong and I get in trouble. And so really when you see people recognized for their goodness, it makes a profound impact on their life because everybody wants to know they matter. And this is a way in which colleagues can show somebody you matter. Thank you for being who you've been as we work together in our professional lives. I'm curious, Bob, how do you, and I know this is part of the passion you have at this point in your journey, your life, is helping other business leaders see that and recognize the potential, the opportunity they have to make a difference in the lives of the people they employ. Yes. How does that conversation go? And what are some of the questions people ask? Or what are, do you still get weird looks? I taught a class. I was a guest speaker in a class called Defining Moments at Washington University's MBA program a few weeks ago. And there were probably a couple hundred people in the room. And it was a combination of daytime MBA students and executive MBAs on weekend. And so it was a blend. And so I gave my talk on true human leadership and had a couple of questions. But one of the gentlemen in the back raised his hand. Based on his age, I suspect he was in the executive MBA program. He, he said, Mr. Chapman, I work for a public company, and we've got to be able to justify these things. So how do you justify this truly human leadership? I paused, and then I said, did you just ask me how do I justify caring for people? Mm. And he kind of leaned back a little bit, a little awkward. That, and I said, do you, I'd ask you a question. How do you justify not? Why do we have to justify caring for people we have the privilege of leading? And when you understand that the person people report to at work are more important to that person's health than their family doctor, and when you know that the way we treat people in our span of care profoundly affects the way they go home and treat their family, why do we need to justify caring? I would say to you, people need to justify not caring. And did he have a rebuttal to that? He just leaned back. <laughs> I think he felt so awkward. He had to admit that he worked for a company that you have to justify to show a return on investment to care. Because what I'm really saying is that you need to care for the people you have the privilege of leading. Remember, Simon Sinek's got a great statement. He said, in the military, we honor those who give of themselves in service of others. And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. Hmm. Simon would say, 
Why can't business leaders be taught that their primary responsibility is the men and women in their care like we do in the military? Hmm. And the answer is we can, we are, and we should. Hmm. Hmm. All right. There's a quotation I stumbled on a few years ago from Max Stackhouse, and he was a theologian at Princeton edited a book called On Moral Business back in the mid-90s. And he wrote this, that business leaders are increasingly the stewards of civilization. And then here's what he said. Families split, but companies endure. Governments fall while firms expand. The steeples of churches are dwarfed by the towers of industry. People say they learn more at work than they did at school. The corporation reaches across cultures. It transcends the boundaries of nations. It serves as the primary center of production and applied technology, and it binds people together of diverse backgrounds in new global networks of interdependence and change. Then I read this from you. Business can change the world if it fully embraces the responsibility for the lives entrusted to it. Reconcile those statements for me, if you will. And I think. They're both in harmony. Yeah. Well, what I realized, you know, my second point of revelation and beyond why can't business be fun was in church. When I was thinking, listening to the rector of our church give an amazing sermon, I was in awe of his ability to inspire us to live fully, purposeful life. And all of a sudden I looked at Cynthia and said, oh, my God, Ed's only got us for one hour a week. We have people in our care for 40 hours a week. We are 40 times more powerful than the church. So when you think of the time we have people in our care, in our span of care, compared to any other institution, even the home, the family, church, business, and if you correlate time to personal realization of their potential, business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if it simply profoundly cared about the people that had the lead. So I would say to you that if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, when we invited people off the farms into our factories and offices for Ford Motor Company, et cetera, with the Industrial Revolution, it was never about human dignity. It was about economic And we made a lot of money in mass production, and we produced product all over the world, and we needed to invite people. but we. We took somebody with a craft off of a farm and we put them in an assembly line, putting a hubcap on every 15 seconds, okay? Then five seconds, then three seconds, then we automated it. So it was never about human dignity. It was about economic growth. So what we need, Kevin, which aligns to the question you asked, we need a human revolution that is in harmony with the industrial level. So we need human value creation in harmony with human value creation or with economic value creation. They're not in disharmony. To care for people is not in disharmony with creating value, okay? And so I would say to you, name any institution in the world more powerful than business because we have people in our care for a good part of their life, okay? And the way we send them home profoundly affects everything else. So business, unfortunately, is not the greatest source of good in the world because it, it began around economic value creation and our education system was created to fill these factories and offices with talented people with skills because we needed them in our factories. It was never about people realizing their potential because we thought, Kevin, when we gave people a job, which means money, that they'd create happiness. And Gallup confirmed that happiness is not correlated to money or health. It's related to a good job working with people you enjoy. 
So we have never embraced the power of business, but it has become, if you look in the world, it has become the most powerful force in the world for good or bad, okay? And I choose path good, okay? In terms of having people in our span of care, not employees, not workers, not labor, but somebody's precious child that is in my span of care that I simply need to be a good steward of in the time that I have them in my span of care. So how do we help others find the path to this human revolution? Other business leaders who are still, you know, more concerned about economic growth than human flourishing. Yeah, you know, I have never met anybody at Harvard, Stanford, McKinsey, Washington University. Nobody has ever debated what I just said with you in terms of that business could be a source for good. Mm-hmm. But standing outside and seeing the moon, nobody's going to debate there's a moon. They just don't know how to get there. Yeah. I would say to you, people are compelled by this truly human leadership and love the idea, but then they go back into the world where we teach people to be managers, bosses, and supervisors. And we never taught people in the course of our education to care and how to inspire people. We taught, you know, again, In my business education, and I think today's education, it's all about me and my success, which we define as money, power, and position. Not living truly purposeful lives. That's not success because unless it's money, power, and position, it's not success. And so we have a model that was built, you know, 100 years ago around the Industrial Revolution, but economic value creation, not human dignity creation. So we just need a human revolution to align with the the industrial revolution so that we create human value and economic value in harmony. Doesn't only make sense when people are sharing their gifts fully, an organization will reach its full potential. And right now, three out of four people in this country are disengaged in what they're doing. And we operate all over the world and it's a universal truth. And it's in government, it's in healthcare, it's in education, it's in the military, and it's in business. It is not just in business. I speak in all facets of our society and the brokenness is everywhere because we have not in our education system created leaders who have the skills and the courage to care for those that have the privilege of leading. So what does it take for someone? I'm wondering, is it education or is there an awakening that precedes education to recognize the power of caring or the opportunity to care? I'm going to remind you that at the same time I was trying to fix a 100-year-old broken business when my dad died when I was 30, with the skills I had in my business background and my experience in business, I was trying, on the other hand, with Cynthia to be a good parent of six kids. And over the 80s and 90s, what I learned is everything I learned about parenting is leadership. It's the stewardship of those precious lives that come into our families through birth, adoption, second marriage that we all take very seriously. What's leadership in business? The stewardship of those precious lives of people that walk into our buildings and offices every day, simply hoping that who they are and what they do matters, that they can return home each night feeling valued. So I would say to you, the issue we feel right now with Barry Wimbler Leadership Institute, where we're out looking for some early adopters, people who believe what we believe and want to join us on this journey, and we help them along this journey and had a tremendous response. At the same time, we believe the ultimate cure for this cancer is education. Hmm. We need to teach people to listen to each other, which is the method upon which we lead and value. 
and we need to teach people how to let people know they matter while we give them technical skills because too much of our education today is financial and strategic and economic and not enough human. And so I would say in our education system, what do we want these young men and women in our care and first elementary education, secondary education, collegiate education, what do we want them to leave us being able to be? And my statement is we need to be leaders in every facet of our life who simply profoundly care about the people whose lives, whether it's in their home, in their office, or any other environment that everybody is somebody's precious child. And Simon Sinek and I have a statement that we've put up on our building now that says, we imagine a society where people think of others first. And we only get there when our education system embraces their role in preparing us to be leaders, preparing us to care. Okay, so you've used the word several times in this conversation that I just want to come back to and ask you to unpack a little bit more what it means to you and what's the distinction. You've used the word stewardship. And Bob, I love the word stewardship, right? Because the stewardship contrasts to ownership. What's yeah. the difference? And if you have a stewardship mentality to your leadership, how do you respond differently? Well, again, I'm going to go back to our family unit that we all care very much about. Stewardship of your children uh, means making sure on the time that you have them in your care, you prepare them to live lives of meaning and purpose so that they can go out into the world and stand on their own two feet and make a difference in the world. I describe that as stewardship. It's not being nice. It's not education. There's a lot of facets to sort. It is all encompassing the word. And I use the words care and stewardship fairly, very similar words to me. Because when we care for somebody, it's not about being nice and giving them what they want any more than raising the kids. And remember, again, our truly human leadership came from Cynthia and my raising our six kids. That's where my revelations came from, that awakening, making sure that we listen to our kids, that we give them responsible freedom, that we prepare them to go out and be good stewards of their lives when they leave us. So I use the word stewardship because I think it's a profound word, but I also use the word care. I purposely do not use the word love, which I'm not against the word love. I just think that's a hard word for some people to use at work. And I don't think it's hard to use the word care and so I try to use a language that brings everybody in the tent, regardless of their past and experience. Because when, again, people say to me all the time, what do you do about the people that don't get it? And I said, first of all, I'm sure there's some people that don't get it, but that's not who I focus on. I focus on the people that do get it. And the people that we occasionally encounter along our journey that maybe don't embrace these principles, we treat them with respect and dignity and hope at some time that they will embrace that. But if not, we can't let them hurt other people. So we need to take them out of harm's way if they don't embrace this. So, and I always say to that person who doesn't get it, which is the most common statement, treat them like you'd like your son or daughter treated if they don't get it. And then people say, well, that would be different. I said, why is that different? That's somebody's son or daughter you're dealing with. Wouldn't you like to live in a society where people, you treat people as you want people to treat your son or daughter? Because that always takes people back because that's really where it came from. If you look at everybody, you have a chance to interface. I'll tell you a quick story. We were in an event in Amsterdam with two partners of a prestigious consulting firm. And 
they heard me give a speech at the University of Amsterdam. And then the one partner left to go catch a flight. And he got in a cab. The cab driver was a young person, somewhat kind of inexperienced and disoriented. And then he ended up missing the flight. And he ended up coming back to a meeting we were having. So he didn't think he was going to be. So he walked in. We said, oh, Mikhail, what are you doing back here? And he said, well, let me tell you something. I was very frustrated going to the airport with this cab driver. Clearly did not know the way. And as a result, I missed my flight. And so when I got back to the office, I thought of what you said this morning. And I thought that that cab driver is somebody's son. Mm. And I talked to that cab driver dramatically differently than I would have because I was so frustrated. But I, and so I would say to you, when we deal with everybody, if we simply deal them with the standard of care, just treat them like you would treat your son or daughter or would like your son or daughter treated, that really takes people back. So I would say to you that it's purely a matter of giving people some time to not view people as a function, not as a receptionist, not as an engineer, not as an accountant, not as a TV talk show host, et cetera, but as somebody's precious child the way you deal with them will impact their life. And that standard of care is woven throughout what we believe in. If you look at everybody as somebody's precious child, and that is the most significant revelation that kind of came at the top. It really changed everything for me because it changed the way I looked at people. Hmm. I didn't look at people as anymore as source of my success. I looked at people as somebody's precious child whose life I would impact by the way I treat them. A couple of follow-up questions here with care and this part of the conversation, Bob. And I appreciate the distinction of you choosing care over love, but can you care without loving? Yes. Okay. I think it's a blurry line between care and love because when you really love somebody, you care for them. Right. Care is as much an action word as is love. I just think care is more the stewardship model, you know. And again, when you care for somebody, you don't give them everything you want. You know, you try to prepare them to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hmm. And that's care. And our hope as we care for our team members who join our company is that they get a chance to discover their gifts, develop their gifts, share their gifts, and most importantly, from our stewardship of our children, go home each night knowing that who they are and what they do matters because they feel appreciated for their gifts. Yeah. Being appreciated. For their gifts. So listening to people, I'd like your listeners to understand the most significant thing we do is we teach people to listen to each other with empathy, which is the greatest act of leadership and parenting. And then we teach people how to let people know they matter, which is recognition and celebration. Everybody wants to know that who they are and what they do matters. And when you do it in thoughtful, timely, and appropriate ways, you profoundly touch their heart. And then, of course, everybody else feels good because they know Mary or Bill deserve that recognition and it makes everybody in the organization feel good. Okay, let's go a little deeper here. You said this earlier, you made the connection, and I want to connect the comment with what you just said, that your relationship with your boss at work has a greater impact on your health than your relationship with your physician, your primary care physician. Yes. And what happens at work doesn't stay at work as much as people would like it to, negative or positive. Right. So if somebody's going home feeling good that their gifts have been used, they've been recognized and rewarded for that, what's different at home when things are good at work? Well, you know, let me go back to a statistic that I learned that validates that. 70, you know, when I, I was speaking to a group of CEOs, 
And I said, you're all concerned about the healthcare crisis, you know, the cost of healthcare and the rising healthcare crisis. You are the problem. You are the cause of the healthcare crisis because 74% of all illnesses are chronic. The biggest cause of chronic illness is stress. And the biggest cause of stress is work. We also know, Kevin, that when we started teaching people how to care at work for each other, they didn't come back and say to us they ran a better accounting department, engineering department, or production department. They came back and said, my marriage is better and my relationship with my kids is better. Now, that startled me. Hmm. Never occurred to me in my journey. Never read it. Never was taught it. Never heard it. That the way we lead in business affects the way people go home and treat their family. Because if you don't feel good about yourself when you go home, you are not fully able to be present and good to your children and your spouse and your community. Because when you think right now, we've got the lowest unemployment in 50 years, okay, and we're at peace in the world, and yet the frustration in our country is one of the highest. Why? Because, and again, if you think of healthcare and education, military and government and business, all not having leaders who care. You can understand that people spend most of their day in an environment where they don't feel bad. So when you look at the issues we face in this country, we're kind of self-destructing as a society because we don't know how to care for each other. Hmm. We've taught how to use each other for economic gain because we define success as money, power, and position. Well, so as I think about it, Bob, whether it's good or bad, and it's not just what a person carries home. But think about every place that an employee stops between the time they leave work and the time they get home. And either they are spreading their anger and toxicity and, you know, kind of venting, whether that's with the barista at Starbucks or the coffee shop or the person checking them out at the grocery store, right? It's everywhere, the ripples. It's even the cab driver that tried to get you to the airport, okay? Yeah. And again, when people don't feel good about themselves, which is 40 hours a week in an environment, how is it possible that they're going to go home and feel good about others if they don't feel good about themselves? I mean, it's so obvious to me because, again, the reaction of all the people I've talked to now in my journey, that this is the fundamental issue we face as a country. And so many people say, you know, you ought to go talk to Congress. I said, there's no point in talking to Congress. Congress just reflects the frustration in homes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, when they go to vote, they're angry. They're frustrated. They're frustrated with their local town. They're frustrated with their, you know, mayor. They're frustrated with their representative. They're frustrated with the government because they're just frustrated. They don't feel good. It's hard to feel good about others when you don't feel good about yourself. And we, in all organizations, not just business, all organizations have a chance to send everybody home knowing that who they are and what they do matters so that they can show that to others that they meet in their life journey on their way home, at home, in their community. And so I would say to you, it's so evident to me. I mean, it's not even gray that this is the key to the world that we want our children to go into and we want to be a part of ourselves. How do we change that? Well, it starts with we need have some examples to show it's nothing to do with Bob Chapman or Barry Waymore. This is the way we were called to live on this earth together, where we genuinely care for each other, okay? And then we need to begin in the earliest phases of our education system, needs to embrace its role in this. You know, we teach people the capital of Idaho, 
but we don't teach people how to listen to each other. Mm. So um, a gentleman named Bill Urey, I have tremendous respect for at Harvard, who negotiates world peace. He came into our plant and he experienced our culture. And he said, I just saw the answer to world peace. And I said, you came to a manufacturing plant in the Midwest and saw the answer to world peace? I I found a place where people genuinely care for each other. Mm. So I'll give you another quick story. I was invited to a school that wanted to embrace leadership practices that we're espousing. And they wanted to show me a classroom. So they took me in, by chance, to a debate class. So four very bright young men were in the front of the class uh, practicing for a national debate contest. And they were very smart and very articulate in their time. And at the end of it, the teacher said, Mr. Chapman, what did you think of that? And what came out of me was, I just saw what's wrong with this country. Mm -hmm. I I said, yes, I just saw the United States Congress where we teach people, I'm right and you're wrong. I said, why don't we teach people to listen to each other? Why don't we teach people to collaborate? Why do we teach people to debate? Why do we teach people to give speeches? I'm right and you're wrong. And so when we look at the conflict in our government, in our communities, in our local government, we've never taught people to listen to each other and be empathetic to how other people feel. And that's why Bill Urey, when he saw this, saw the answer to world peace. He said, I've been going to global peace talks now for decades. And I now realize that's what they are. They're global peace talks. The reason we have conflict in the world is because we don't know how to listen to each other. Okay, so help us. I think everybody listening to this podcast, hopefully they're listening to this podcast, wants to be a better listener. What's one thing or two things? Where does that start? The quest to listen more intently, more deeply from your perspective. Well, uh, we're blessed with an individual, a team of people who, when we decided to create leaders, said the first thing we need to do is we need to teach people to listen to each other, which amazed me because as an adult, I know how to listen. I started listening when I was a very young man. I didn't know that I wasn't listening. I had ears, but I wasn't listening. So the first thing we teach people in our class, and Cynthia and I now and I have created a nonprofit around the country where we go into communities and we teach people how to listen to each other with empathy. And we see profound changes. And it's virtually being fully present when somebody's talking not judging, but simply tell me more. Why do you feel that? Without judgment, being fully present. And honestly, that is what our schools need to teach. And we're now just beginning to get some schools that are willing to open up the idea that maybe we should teach listening in addition to speech, in addition to debate, because collaboration can only occur when husband and wife and community members in our countries if we know how to listen to each other and understand their feelings. It's not easy because most of us, including me, are more willing to tell you what I think than listen to what you think, okay? And that's why we have so much conflict in families and communities and governments. And so listening is the foundation of true human leadership. It is the greatest. I thought when you cared for somebody, Kevin, you went over and talked to them. Hmm out there when you care for somebody, you go over to listen to them with empathy. Hmm. And so it's a matter of being fully present and actually not judging, but trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand their feelings, not judge them, but understand them. 
because people simply want to be understood. Hmm. People simply want to be understood. Which is the key to care. You can't care for somebody unless you can listen to them with empathy. So that's why, again, when we teach this in our nonprofit and in our company to all our people, the single biggest thing people say is, it changed my life. And I said, wait, we taught a three-day class at work and it changed your life? And they say, yes, my wife and I have got the best marriage we've ever had. I now know I raised my two-year-old child. My teenage daughter is calling me. We teach in work a class about empathetic listening so they can be leaders and they want to tell us about how it's affected their personal life. 95% of, the, of what we teach, people say, is it affects their family life. Because where did our message come from? It came from Cynthia and I raising our six kids. Mm. What gives you joy in this season of life? Waking up every day, feeling blessed with the message that could profoundly change the world. And that your children and my children and, and Mary's children someday would have a chance to be who they're intended to be and appreciated for whatever that is. And the time they spend on the face of this earth, they would live in joy to knowing that they matter. Mm -hmm. All right. So you've written a book, Everybody Matters. Why that title? You know, we had no intention of writing a book. We're manufacturing it. I'm an accountant. I'm not an author. But after Simon Sinek saw our culture and he said, I'm no longer a nutty idealist. I just have seen what I dreamed of. Mm. I dreamed a world where you could tap anybody on the shoulder in any city and say, do you like their job? And they'd say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. When Bill Urey said it was an answer for world peace, and Srikamar Rao said, you know, contributing editor to Forbes, he'd never seen anything like this in his life. I kept having people say to me, I've never seen anything like it. And finally, Srikamar Rao said, you have got to share this with the world. The world needs to hear this message. So, Wrote the book together. So we got Rashi Zodia, a great author who wrote uh, Conscious Capitalism and Forms of Endearment, uh, who brought, brought a lot of color around the message from his own experience. And when you think, when you brainstorm what title will capture the message without question in that brainstorming session, when we got to, it's as simple as everybody matters. Okay. And we wanted this to be a timeless title that would live on for generations, that people would use this. Our goal of the book was to give people a, if you will, the journey to this and then how to live it. And that it, our goal was eventually to be studied in schools, prepare people to be leaders of, that impacts other people's lives. So I was having a session with some people of our faith the other day about, and this gentleman described Barry Weimler as a modern day parable. And I had never heard that. I, that thought just occurred to him as because he studied us, wrote a case study on us from a background of his face over in England. And we were talking about, you know, the stories in the Bible and the stories and everybody matters. And I said, well, if you take a Bible and you just scratch out the title and say, everybody matters, wouldn't that have been a pretty good name for the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. I think it, it was meant to kind of capture the message of the book. Were you using that language before Everybody Matters? Or was it the writing of the book that helped, you know, distill that? I would say we originally called it people-centric leadership. Hmm. People, leadership focused on the people you had the privilege of leading. 
And then Simon Sinek came and said, no, 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 this is truly human leadership. And so we migrated to that. And Everybody Matters was just, you know, after the book was written, you know, and we were trying to come up with what title would capture the message of the book, it was pretty unanimous when we had that session that Everybody Matters, the extraordinary power of caring for people like family. Hmm. And again, it, it strikes me. General Flynn, who wrote the forward to Simon Sinek's book, came into one of our plants and he interviewed people for all day. And he said to me after his interviews, he said, you know, Bob, I'm struck by the fact that almost everybody described this organization as a family. He said they did not describe it like a family. They described it as a family. Hmm. And I said, yeah, isn't that interesting? Because none of those people are related to each other. But what does the word family mean? It means a place of ultimate care, right? Hmm of safety, place of value. And if our company actually represents the people, if the first word that pops out of their head, thinking about their experience with us as a family, mm. then we've achieved our goal of creating an environment where everybody matters. Mm. Mm. So the book's been out a couple of years now. Uh-huh. From all of the conversations, encounters you've had since writing the book, is there a chapter you'd add? You know, I think the piece that came out after we wrote the book, was very much around the fact, because I didn't, when we wrote the book, we didn't know this, that because it was, we learned after we wrote the book that your leader at work has a greater impact on your health than your family doctor, and that the way we treat you at work affects the way you go home and treat your family. Those, when I say those two now in all my talks, because I, you know, I get a lot of talks now around the country, the various parts of our country, when I say that, the reaction of audience is always striking because everybody's, oh my God, that makes sense. But nobody, when you promote somebody to a leadership position, do they have the qualities to care? Oh no, just earn the right to be, you know, it's kind of like somebody who's standing around in this hospital surgery room and say, anybody want to do that surgery today? You seem like a good guy. Why don't you, do, you know, without any of the skills to be a surgeon, we would never let anybody do that to us in a hospital. Why do we put people in leadership positions who have no skill other than a technical skill, okay? That why don't they have to go through a program to show that they know how to care for those people? You know, we just, gee, he's a good salesman, so we'll make him the sales leader. Gee, he's a good accountant, we'll make him the accounting manager. And so we use this language of managers, bosses, and supervisors, and that's like exactly what we've got. That's exactly the way people feel. So we need to change the language, and we need to prepare people to be leaders. And if you understand, when you sit down to promote somebody, if you say, do you understand, Kevin, and promoting you now to run the accounting department, that your leadership will profoundly affect the health and the family life of the people that you lead, you say, whoa, wait, wait, I thought I was just getting a nicer car, a nicer salary, a nicer office. I don't know how to affect the lives of these people. I'm just an accountant. Mm. Unfortunately, in business and in most parts of our world, we put people in positions of leadership that they're not prepared to be in. We hope it works out. Is there something you do to make sure you're showing care on a daily basis? How do you stay connected to care? Let me ask it like that, Bob. How do you stay connected to caring? That's a good question, Kevin. And, you know, Mary may have a different opinion, but I just think I am an eternal optimist. I naturally look for the goodness in people. And so in that course, I enjoy the chance to meet people in my journey every day. And so 
I engage the people that I meet, whether it's the person in the grocery store that's checking us out or the person at the uh, airfield where we're landing. You know, every chance you have to interact with somebody else is a chance to enrich their life. Because, you know, in any marriage, it is the little things that make the difference in a good marriage. And in our lives, it's the little things every day that build up and create this sense, life is good. I need to give back to those that give me the privilege of leading. So I would say, Gavin, I think, you know, I always say the responsibility of a leader is to give those people in your span of care a grounded sense of hope for a better future. Okay. Whether you're president of the United States or uh, mayor of the city or president of a company or running the accounting department, your responsibility is to give those people in your span of care a grounded sense of hope for a better future so that they put their trust in you and they can go home each night feeling safe and valued and in turn treat the others in their span of care the same way. That is the responsibility of leadership. And, you know, right? I love it. Thank you, Bob. Is there something else that we've not yet talked about that would allow you to, you know, bring a fitting close to this conversation before we wrap it up? You know, I, I might leave you with, I was interviewed by some organizational development professors a few years ago. And after a two-hour interview, they said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, you're the first CEO we've ever interviewed that didn't talk about their product. And I said, well, we've been talking about our product for the last two hours. It's our people. Mm-hmm. I won't go to my grave proud of the machines we built. I'll go to my grave proud of the people who built the machines, whose lives had meaning and purpose around that economic model. So I would say to you that we feel very blessed to be sharing this message and the way this country is embracing this and engaging it is very encouraging to me. We're starting to get attention of universities and schools so that we can begin teaching these young men and women how to care for each other in their journey to a life of significance. So I am very encouraged. No, it is a long-term battle, but we're trying to show that it's not about me or I'm This is the way we are called to live on this earth together. We genuinely care for each other and therefore go home each night knowing that who we are and what we do matters. We can make a material difference in the world. We don't need to change governments. We don't need to change laws. We don't need to raise taxes. We simply need to care. Wow. We simply need to care. What a fitting close. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for just opening up your heart and sharing so graciously and generously with us. Your smile is contagious, Kevin. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Bob. (laughs) Hey, folks. I'm already looking forward to when this episode is released, and I do what I always do. You see, when the episode comes out, I get to listen to it with fresh ears, just like you, as if I'm not the host. And I'll let you in on a little secret how that works for me. I speed up the recording, and then I don't realize that I'm listening to me. It's kind of a brain hack. And I can hear and enjoy the conversation free of the criticism that I would otherwise exercise towards myself. Hey, you do it too, right? Or is it just me? No. Hey, I can't wait to hear what resonates with you. This podcast is a catalyst for connection, conversation, and community. And I love it when you engage, when we engage in conversation after you listen to the podcast and you share what resonates with you and your journey. 
my friend Gary Turner from the UK recently published a video unpacking what he learned or what he enjoyed from the conversation with Kimberly Davis. I hope he'll do the same with this one. All right, Gary, I just challenged you publicly there, my friend. So here's what stood out to me. When a world leader on negotiations and peace talks, Bill Urey, says that Barry Waymiller is teaching the answer to world peace, that gets my attention. And do you remember what it was that what Yuri was talking about? Listening, listening with empathy. And that's not just a workplace skill, it's a life skill. We need more listening and less talking. Hey folks, I'd encourage you, stop trying to get others to hear what you have to say and listen to what they have to say. Second one, what happens at work doesn't stay at work. Man, I've been harping on this for a long time now. It follows the worker home, and it either lightens the load at home and has a lift for everybody involved, or it adds to the burdens. So I'd encourage you to add this to your leadership selection and orientation. These words from Bob. Your leadership will profoundly affect the lives of your team and their health. Think about that. And then the last thing, I hope this lingers with you long into today and the days that come after with this one, that every chance you have to interact with someone today, however brief or prolonged that interaction may be, is a chance to care and a chance to demonstrate care. I want to invite you to join me in that challenge. Look at the interactions you have today, however fleeting or long-term they are. Demonstrate care. You know I'd love to hear what's rolling through your mind. Email me, kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com, or call me, 678-744-5111. Until next time, I encourage you to live, love, and lead with purpose. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Are you wanting to grow as a human's first leader and connect in meaningful conversation with other human's first leaders? Join the Human's First Book Club, where they dive deep into a book a month and engage the authors in conversation. Go to humansfirstbookclub.com.